And as we mentioned uh, yesterday, as we look at these night visions of Zechariah, we said we weren't going to be taking them in order. So yesterday in our classes, we showed how there was a, we suggested a chiastic structure to these visions that Zechariah had um, received in that night. And we had looked at then the beginning and the end of that in our classes yesterday. We looked at that first vision presenting Christ standing among the myrtle trees. The company of the saints were in behind him, and they had been completing the mission, the mission that they had been sent out on at the very last vision of that evening in Zechariah chapter 6. And we also noted that the four carpenters in the second vision were linked together with the four chariots that were in that final vision as well. And then we didn't really, we, we only considered a couple of verses in about Jerusalem in the in the in the third vision from Zechariah chapter two. Um, but that was a that's a um a chapter of all about the city of Jerusalem, the future glory of that city. But we did consider the vision of the woman in the ephah in Zechariah 5, which brought us to what was called Shinar, but we saw how that is stands for the city of Rome. So we had these two cities in contrast, one with the other, one a city of the present, one a city of the future. And really, our vision needs to be focused on the things of the future, and to see ourselves there. I know this is hard to read because I didn't insert the slide with the white text. Um, but uh, we can see that there is the, uh, in the, we're going to come now to the fourth and the fifth vision this morning, right in the middle. And, um, and we're going to see in the exhortation this morning, the Lord Jesus Christ presented as the high priest in Zechariah 3, which will stand in contrast with the failure of the Mosaic priesthood with the flying scroll that we saw yesterday, which focused our minds on the, the first century failure of the religious leaders in the time of Christ. But for our Sunday school this morning, we're going to be considering this one that stands right in the middle, we would suggest. And even if you were to take another approach to this chiastic structure, and because there's another way that we could rearrange that, this one and the one with the high priest would be in the middle as well. So uh, that there's another variation on this that you could do. But for our purposes this weekend, we're taking this vision in Zechariah 4 as being the one right in the middle. It's the focus because it really talks about God's whole purpose with his creation to be and, and encompasses the name of God, which is to be manifest in a multitude of people bringing glory and honor to his name. In this particular case, shining his light, the light of his glory to all the earth. These two central visions in Zechariah 3 and Zechariah 4 also, as we say, focus our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is going to be presented in chapter 3 as the priest. He'll be presented in chapter 4 as the king. And so chapter 3 focuses on Joshua the high priest as a type of Christ. Zechariah 4 focuses on Zerubbabel as a type of Christ. Now, there are some links in this chapter that go to what we were looking at yesterday in the final vision. So you're going to see that as we go through, there are going to be some things that, well, one thing in particular that we weren't able to explore yesterday. 
So if you just go back to Zechariah chapter 6 for a moment, and you will recall yesterday we were talking about the fact that these four chariots that are mentioned in verse 1 of Zechariah 6, down in verse 5, they are referred to as the four spirits of the heavens. And that's the idea that we're really going to be focusing in on in this particular class. Um, we're going to be exploring that idea of the four spirits of the heavens. There will be another number associated with this, but this is about the spirit of God. Um, and, and we'll see what that is, why it's, why it's used there in chapter 6 and how it is alluded to in chapter 4 as well. Now, again, this is just one artist's rendition of what the vision might have looked like from chapter 4. Again, you start searching for images of these things, you'll come up with all kinds of different pictures, all kinds of different images. This one was one I thought maybe closest resembled what was, um, what was being shown. We've got two olive trees on either side of this great lampstand. And that's the word that's used there. When we come in chapter four to talk about um, when he sees in verse two, a candlestick, the word is actually more of a menorah is the idea. It's a large, um, well, Brother Carter calls it a large apparatus of brightness is how he puts it. We'll see that quote a little bit later. But it is this. It is a large candlestick, very similar to the one that would have been in uh, the tabernacle, in the temple, Solomon's temple. Except this one has a large bowl on the top, a reservoir, if you will. So the the oil from the olive trees is coming out through the through the branches into these golden pipes, and then coming down, pouring into this big bowl. And then there are these pipes that are going to, in this artist's rendition, going to each of the each of the different candles. I mean, there's different ways that you could picture this, um, but you get the general idea of the different elements of this that are contained in this vision. This is a post-resurrection vision, and we pointed that out yesterday by mentioning that in verse one of chapter four, Zechariah is wakened out of sleep. And we said that relates to back to Daniel chapter 10, when Daniel also was wakened out of sleep and then given a vision of the resurrection. This is telling us that the things we're looking at here in this chapter take place after the resurrection. Then, as we say, we come into verse two. And it says, he said, what seest thou? And Zechariah says, I have looked and behold a candlestick all of gold with a bowl upon the top of it. Let me go back to the image here so we can see this as we're reading through. A bowl upon the top of it, his seven lamps thereof, and seven pipes to the seven lamps, which were upon the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of it, of the bowl, and another upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So Zechariah has the same question we do. What am I looking at? What does it signify? The angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? Zechariah says, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of Yahweh unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, nor by my spirit, saith Yahweh of hosts. 
seems like a strange answer in verse six. We'll come to that in, in due course. But what we want to focus in here is on the seven lamps. We aren't able to look at all the aspects of this lampstand, um, but we do want to take spend some time exploring this idea of the seven lamps. And I'm going to suggest to you that the seven lamps that are here in this chapter are equated with, go back to chapter three, seven eyes that are upon a stone. Now, we haven't looked at Zechariah 3 yet, but just go back to there and go to verse 9. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Now, we think about a stone. Think about a stone in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. What is he referred to as? He's the chief cornerstone. We're also going to see he's in the exhortation, he is also referred to as the headstone of the corner in Psalm 118. So a stone is related to the Lord Jesus Christ. And upon this stone, there are seven eyes. So there are seven eyes upon a stone in chapter three. In chapter four, there are seven lamps that are upon this lampstand. Now, why do we say that they represent the same thing? Well, we're going to find out in the book of Revelation, they're going to bring the two together and tell us that they both are speaking about the same thing. Just before we go there, notice in Daniel 10, verse 6, that post-resurrection or that resurrection vision, it talks about that man who we talk, we say is the multitudinous Christ, the Christ body, Christ and the saints together. It's described as his eyes are lamps of fire. So even Daniel brings together the idea of eyes and fire, lamps of fire and eyes. He brings them together for us. But come over to the book of Revelation. I want to go back to Revelation 4. We were there yesterday when we were talking about the cherubim. Revelation 4. But we sort of, we did read this verse, but we didn't comment on it. At that time, we'll comment on it now. Revelation 4, verse 5. And this is the vision of the throne room. The, the throne and, and around about the throne, the rainbow round about the throne. And, the, and there were those four living creatures that were there, those four beasts that were speaking and, and represented us as we saw in the future. But verse 5 says this, Out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. Well, there's our seven lamps of fire that Zechariah saw. Seven lamps of fire before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So what we learn in this verse is that the seven lamps of fire are equivalent with the seven spirits of God, okay, whatever that is. Now we go over to Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6. And here's our reference to the seven eyes. I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all 
the earth. Now, when we look at this, notice there in this chapter now, we have seven eyes, and they are also equivalent with the seven spirits of God. So what we can get from this is that the seven, what, what we've, what's happened in Revelation is we've got the seven lamps of fire from Zechariah chapter 4. We've got the seven eyes from Zechariah chapter 3. And now in both Revelation 4 verse 5 and 5 verse 6, we're told both of them are equivalent to the seven spirits of God. Whatever they represent, they're representing all the same thing. And we have another clue that's here at Revelation 5, verse 6, which says, they are sent forth into all the earth. Now, who were sent forth into all the earth yesterday when we were looking? In, Reve in Zechariah chapter 6, we saw that the, the saints, those four chariots, which are referred to as the four spirits of, of God, they were also sent forth into all the earth. Now, one more passage, Revelation 1, verse 4. Here's where we have reference to those seven spirits. Because if we can determine what the seven spirits of God are, then we can uncover and unlock what the seven lamps of fire and the seven eyes all represent. Revelation 1, verse 4 says, John, to the seven ecclesias which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. So in this opening, we are, we are told that this is coming to John, grace be to you, and peace from God, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. Now, if we can take something away from this, the seven spirits then are distinct from, in some way, distinguished from the Lord Jesus Christ, who's mentioned separately in verse 5. A second here. Okay. Okay. Now, something else that's interesting about this, in all of these passages, 4 verse 5, Revelation 5 and 6, and 1 verse 4, that word are, which I've highlighted in green, is actually singular. It should be translated is. Now, the translators didn't know what to make of that, because that would, that would be bad English, wouldn't it? If we said, which uh, these are the seven lamps of fire, which is the seven spirits of God. Like it doesn't, we wouldn't talk like that normally. There is a singular aspect to this. Also, although there are seven of seven lamps of fire and seven eyes and seven spirits of God, in some way we're being told that they are all one. They are singular. There's a singular aspect to them. What we should take away from that is we're not looking for an interpretation that says, well, this lamp of fire represents that, and this lamp of fire, the second one represents this, and the third one represents that. No, they're all representing the same thing. They're, 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 they're seven, but one. You could think of it in terms of like a lampstand. One single lampstand with seven 
lamps that are that are burning, and yet they're all one, same, presenting the same uh, light, as it were. In Ephesians 4, verse 4, in relation to the Spirit, we're told there's one body and there is one Spirit. We conclude from this that the seven Spirits of God mentioned in Revelation is the one Spirit of God manifest in a multitude. So I'll say that again. The seven Spirits is the one spirit manifest in a multitude. What do we mean by that? Well, again, we've already pointed out this is helpful in Revelation 5 verse 6, this idea of sent forth into all the earth. It's basically we're we're looking at a picture of the saints in the kingdom of God. The seven lamps of fire, the seven eyes, the seven spirits of God are all representing God willing us in the future as part of the bride of Christ. We're going to shine forth the light of God's glory into all the earth. But we are the manifestation of God's spirit. Let's explore this one step further. It's helpful to be able to look at this idea of what does a spirit mean when we talk about it in scripture. Now, I'm just highlighting three aspects that I think are helpful to be able to understand what we mean when we talk about the spirit of God and how we manifest that spirit. First of all, the Spirit of God is used to speak about the nature of God. John 4, verse 24 says, God is spirit. But we also learn in Hebrews 1, verse 14, that the angels are also referred to as ministering spirits. It's talking about the spirit nature. Now, it's important to distinguish this from ideas that, 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 that when it says God is spirit, it's not just saying that God is some whiff of spirit that we can't quite put our, our, our finger on. Brother Roberts, when he goes into when he starts off in Christendom astray, goes to great lengths to show that that's not how we're to understand God. God does have a physical presence, and we can very easily prove that by saying God has a dwelling place; it's in heaven, and the Lord Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. So, just as the angels have a physical presence, so too does God. Then we have the promise in Matthew, in the, in the Beatitudes, that we will one day see God. Well, if he's just a whiff of spirit, these things would be very hard to be able to comprehend and to understand. So when it says God is spirit, the idea of the spirit is speaking with the nature of God, the spiritual body, one that, of course, that we will have in the future that will allow us so that we cannot, we're not even capable of sinning, we won't die, we're immortal, and, and so on. This is the idea of the spirit when it talks about this, the, the nature of God. But of course, the, the spirit of God is also the power of God. And we have just a few references here that would be very familiar to us. In Exodus 15, it talks about when the Red Sea, the, the waters were parted, parted. It's the word ruach in the Old Testament, the wind. And that wind blew and the seas were parted so that they could cross through the Red Sea on dry land. That was the Spirit of God that parted that water. It was the power of God. Of course, Luke one thirty-five: the power of the highest shall overshadow thee, was spoken to Mary. And so Mary was found of child by the Holy Spirit. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, God giveth not the Spirit by measure 
unto him, and he was able to perform miracles, which then went on to the apostles. So when we think about the Spirit of God, we're also thinking of the power of God. As it relates to us in the future, well, we are told that God's Holy Spirit gifts in the future age will be poured out again, and we will be having spiritual bodies have the power of the Spirit as well. The other idea, and this is a really important one for uncovering some of those more difficult passages, is that the Spirit of God also speaks about the wisdom of God as revealed in his word. Now, we can simply go to a passage like Second Peter, which says that holy men spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the, it was God by God's Spirit that, that men were caused to write the word, the infallible word of God. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. First Corinthians is a good one just to go to. And just actually just go over there because this is really um, good to be able to see. In fact, it's a good coloring exercise if you get the time to do it some other time. To go through 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3 and to just take two coloring pencils of different colors and go through and, and highlight the, the contrast that the apostle is drawing between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. And you'll see at 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 1, it comes out there, I, brethren, when I came unto you, came not with the ex, um, sorry, not that verse, that, that is one, but um, let's just go down to, um, let's go to verse uh, verse 4. This is a good verse. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. So there's man's wisdom on the one hand, but on the other hand, in demonstration of the spirit and power, and the spirit and of power. Verse 5, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So see this contrast that's going on between the wisdom of men and God's spirit, God's power. Verse 6 says, howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that came to come to naught. But, verse 7, we speak the wisdom of God. And then verse 10 says, but God has revealed them unto us by his spirit. So it's by the spirit of God that God's word came. And then God's word then is, that, is the product of the spirit of God. And it's that word that instructs us in God's wisdom and his ways. And so you can see again, verse 13 is another example, which things also we speak, not in the words of man, which man's wisdom teacheth, but that which the Holy Spirit teacheth. Verse 14, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. And then you come all the way to verse 16 of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 2. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? We have the mind of Christ. And there, that idea that of the, the things of God, that which the Holy Spirit teaches, is referred to as the mind of Christ, the mind of the Lord. So you can go through that whole chapter and see this contrast. That's important because when people say the Spirit of God in Romans 8 is dwelling within us, well, what does that mean? It's simply saying God's word 
needs to be dwelling and active in us. We need to be developing the mind of Christ. And of course, in the future age, is that what we'll have? Of course it is. That's what we will have in the future age. And so when we talk about the seven spirits of God, it's the one spirit in multitudinous manifestation. In other words, a multitude made up of those who stand before God's throne, bearing the nature of God, wielding the power of God, and filled with the wisdom of God. And I'd suggest to you that's what the seven spirits, the seven lamps of fire, the seven eyes are all representing and standing for. A multitude bearing the nature of God, wielding the power of God, filled with the wisdom of God. And that's our hope, isn't it, brothers and sisters, to be amongst that multitude, that great multitude that will be assembled on Mount Zion in the future, having the Father's name written in their foreheads. Now we go back to Zechariah chapter 4. And I'm watching the time. We'll be... uh, when you want me to wrap up at uh, 11? Is it? Yeah, that's fine. That's, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. Here's that reference that we spoke about earlier. Revelation 5, 6. They were sent forth into all the earth. And there we are in Zechariah 6. They are, um, sorry, in don't have it on the screen here. Zechariah 6. Um, the chariots were sent forth. Um or, or they were standing before the Lord of all the earth, and they're sent forth to walk to and fro through the earth. And what do they report in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 11? They come back and they say, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. So they've gone through all the earth. This idea that they are sent forth is the same idea of the work of the angels now in Hebrews 1, verse 14. It's the work of angels to be sent forth into all the earth. And so there's the idea of there's the, the seven eyes. Um, I think we're just going to skip through this for the sake of time um, because there's another reference to the, um, let me just put this up here. This is the this is the idea of the seven eyes where the seven eyes were mentioned in Zechariah 3 and 9. They were also there in Revelation 4 verse 6. The four beasts were full of eyes, it says. It doesn't mention seven, but the idea of seven, of course, is completeness. Being full of eyes were related to those four living creatures in Revelation 4, verse 6. And in um, here in Zechariah 4, verse 10, in this chapter that we're looking at, it says, Who has despised the day of small things? They shall rejoice and see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of Yahweh, which run to and fro through the whole earth. Now, even in that verse of chapter 10, you can see that the seven lamps of fire, those seven, are linked together with, they are the eyes of Yahweh, the seven eyes of the previous chapter, and they are said to run to and fro through the whole earth, which is exactly the words of Zechariah 6 and verse 7 as well. So all these ideas are being brought together. We're just sort of solidifying these things in our mind. Now, the two olive trees that stand on either side of this great bowl and this lampstand, well, we think of the olive tree 
And uh, in Hosea 14, verses 5 and 6, it talks about the olive tree as representing Israel. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. That's then picked up in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul in the very familiar passage of Romans 11 will speak about the olive tree and how the olive tree, there were branches that were uh, no good and there were also branches that were grafted into that olive tree. And so we have both Jews and Gentiles brought together. Gentiles grafted into the Jewish uh, promises, the Jewish hope, um, their olive tree. And so that's what we would be familiar with from uh, Romans chapter 11. So we have this idea of these two olive trees representing Jew and Gentile. The olive branches when we think about the branches, we think about the, what the Lord had to say in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And again, the, the branches are mentioned also in Romans chapter 11. Of those branches, though, it says... And if we go down to the end of the chapter, verse 12 and 13, it says, I answered again and said unto him, what be these two olive branches, which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? Verse 13, and he, and he answered me and said, knowest thou not what these be? And I said, no, my Lord. Then said he, verse 14, these, referring to the branches, are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, if you look in the um, margin, if you have a marginal note, it will say for anointed ones, the sons of oil. These are the sons of oil that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. We would think that that Lord of the whole earth is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ in the context here, the same as um, as we found in Zechariah chapter six, he was referred to with um, with the, uh, the a similar title. This idea, then, they are the sons of oil. Well, there were two uh, ones that were uh, that were sons of oil in Zechariah's day. They were Zerubbabel, the governor and Joshua the high priest. And we find elsewhere in scripture that kings were anointed with oil, and priests were also anointed with oil. And so these two anointed ones um, could be referred, in the immediate context, could be referring to Joshua and to Zerubbabel. The idea there is of a king priesthood. So in other words, from the two branches of mankind, from Jew and from Gentile, there are brought together a people that are going to be kings and priests unto God, that are going to be manifesting God's, the light of God's glory. We also have the reference in Zechariah 6, there it is, the four spirits that are standing before the Lord 
of all the earth. There's a similar title that is given to us there. Brother Carter says, then the two olive trees then represent the Jew and Gentile. From them, two oil-bearing branches supply the reservoir of the lampstand with oil, and by the golden pipe of faith, some of both the Jewish and Gentile divisions of the human race have been brought into permanent contact with the lamp light stand. The daily supply of the mosaic type tells of its temporariness, but the reservoir tells of a perennial supply. So in this particular case, it's not like it needs to be lighted every single day. There is a perennial supply of oil coming forth, and this multitude the, the multitude, uh, the body of Christ, made up of Jew and Gentile, are shining forth God's light in all the world in immortal glory. Then we come to verse 6, and we'll wrap up very soon. It says, He answered me, This is the word of Yahweh unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith Yahweh of hosts. Who art thou? O great mountain, before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. In these verses, we need to understand and remember the historical context of what's going on. Remember that the people in the land were trying to, um, trying to uh, undermine the work that they were doing in building the temple. They were sending letters back to the king of Persia to find out by whose authority, under what authority they had to be able to build this temple in Jerusalem. And here in these verses, we're told that God was going to bring this work to a conclusion. This work that they were involved in in building the temple was going to be brought to a conclusion. That's the immediate context. In the grander fulfillment of these things, God is going to bring his whole plan and purpose with the earth to a fruition and to fulfillment. And it's not going to come about by human might or by human power, but it's going to come about by the spirit of God, by God's power, by my spirit. And Brother Thomas commenting on says on this says, the effectuation of these results, and this is an old quote, so bear with it. The effectuation of these results by such means alone as one nation employs to overturn the power of another, in which its success depends upon numbers, discipline, artillery, and so forth, courageously and scientifically applied, is impossible. So God is not going to bring these things about because of human ingenuity and strength in numbers or because somebody, a group of people have sat down and carefully planned these things out and the strategy. He says, Jerusalem will never attain to her destined ex exaltation as Yahweh's throne by the mere prowess and strategy of an Alexander or a Napoleon. It is to be accomplished by Zerubbabel, in whose hand is the plumb line. And by Zerubbabel, he's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a great mountain in those days. That great mountain was, well, it was the powers of the people that were trying to um, undermine that work. Here's a passage in Jeremiah 51, which talks about Babylon 
being a great mountain. Just going to skip ahead here. And then finally, as we come in, this will set the stage for the exhortation. It says that um, in Zechariah 4, it says, verse 7, middle of the verse, he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with crying, shoutings, crying grace, grace unto it. And verse 9, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me unto you. The headstone was something that was put onto the very top of the building. So we have the cornerstone and the headstone, which was the final piece, which held the walls up and so it wouldn't fall down. And so Christ is depicted here as the one who is both the cornerstone and the headstone. He is the one who laid the foundation and he's the one who will finish it as well. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. And so this chapter, as we see, is really talking about Zerubbabel, but pointing forward to Christ, the one who, by whose hand and by whose might, all these things will be brought to pass. And we can look with great anticipation to the time to come when we shall reign with Christ in immortal glory and shine forth God's glory in all the earth.